You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to British Murders, the podcast that focuses exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the sixth episode of season seven. I hope you've had the chance to listen to last week's collaboration episode with Zevan Odelberg from Kinda Murdery. Zevan told me the story of Hawley Harvey Crippen, whom he referred to as Dr. Devil's Breath, and I'd love for you to give it a listen. Before we get into this week's episode, let's break the ice as we always do. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. True facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know that you are taller in space than you are on Earth? (laughs) These facts are class. It's because gravity is not pulling you down and compressing your spine. So you gain a little bit of height in space. So the next time you're in space, you can show off the fact that you're a little bit taller. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. Here's the quote. The way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing. That was said by the... Disney hierarchy, Mr. Man, the big dog at Disney, Walt. Walt Disney said that. Very inspirational. This week's case was suggested via email by listener Charlotte Cowley, and we're in the market town of Hensford in the Cannock Chase district of Staffordshire, West Midlands. Here are five quickfire facts about Hensford, which is spelled H-E-D-N-E-S-F-O-R-D. There's a lot of silent letters in Hensford. Number one. In the late 1870s, a reservoir was built on Hensford Hills, but in 1887 it lost thousands of gallons of water when part of its embankment collapsed. Number two, Hensford Hills Raceway was built on the site in the 1950s and is Europe's fastest quarter-mile oval short-circuit motor racing venue. Number three, Gaskins Wood, the nickname given to a wooded area of Hensford Hills local nature reserve, was so named after the events of this week's case. Number four, between 1914 and 1918, two army training camps were built in Hensford and over a quarter of a million British and Commonwealth troops passed through, destined for the Western Front. And number five, the award-winning Museum of Cannock Chase is located at the site of the former Valley Colliery, which became a mining training centre. Most of those facts are relevant to this week's story, so keep a keen ear out as I progress through it. As of the 2011 census, the estimated population of Hensford was 17,343. Let me quickly advise you that this podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. As always, listener discretion is advised. We're travelling back over a hundred years for this week's story, and to be honest, it shares a lot of similar themes with last week's Dr. Crippen episode. Both cases are from the early 20th century and both involve the murder of a wife by her husband. Interestingly, some newspapers at the time referred to this week's case as another Crippen atrocity, though I assure you it's merely coincidental that I will have told both stories on back-to-back episodes in chronological order. Our villain this week was born Thomas Henry Gaskin, but he would later be christened Henry Thomas Gaskin by his parents Harriet Eliza Gaskin, near Poole, and Henry Joseph Albert Gaskin. He was named after his father and his maternal grandfather. To clarify, Henry Thomas Gaskin should not be confused with Donald Henry Gaskins. 
the American serial killer whose case I covered with Bobby Holmes of Killer Stories in May 2021. Born on July 22nd, 1891 in Litchfield, Staffordshire, Henry was the first of three children to Henry Senior and Harriet, with Agnes Mary Gaskin being born in late 1893 and Mary Louise Gaskin coming along in February 1901. Sadly, Mary Louise passed away four months after she was born. The cause of her death was said to be convulsions, which I suspect may have resulted from epilepsy. In 1898, three years before the birth of his second sister, Henry reacted rather badly to being asked to go and wash his hands. Speaking from experience, asking a child to go and wash their hands is akin to asking an adult to pick up dog shit with their bare hands. A strange analogy, sure, but I feel it describes the situation perfectly. My fellow parents out there, I'm sure, will attest to that. How exactly did Henry react badly? Well, rather than merely throw a temper tantrum and turn on the waterworks, Henry grabbed a scarf and tied it around his neck so tightly that he would eventually pass out. He tried to strangle himself. Harriet recalled that he'd always been a strange child and no doubt feared that he was going down the same dark path her father had. Thomas Poole, Henry's maternal grandfather, had once attempted to end his life by slitting his own throat, but miraculously he survived and went on to live until he was 80. School was likely not Henry's favourite place to be. His poor attendance backs up that claim. How he did with his education is unknown, but he was said to have struggled to make friends and always preferred to keep his own company whenever possible. To top it off, Henry suffered from regular headaches, as his mother and maternal grandfather had, and as a result, mood swings were common. He was also easily led astray by others, which saw him in trouble with the law far more often than his parents, especially the no-nonsense, God-fearing Henry Senior, would have liked. Before I get into the petty crimes committed by a young Henry Junior, let me tell you a disturbing little side story. When Henry was 11 and Agnes, his sister, was 9, they were messing about in a field one day when they should have been in school. Nearby, members of the travelling community, including a man named William Tompkinson, had set up camp. As the two Gaskin children, accompanied by Henry's friend Frank Weaver, walked past William's van, the 60-something-year-old invited them all inside. In an unexpected act of what the kids deemed to be generosity, William gave Henry a penny, worth about £1.50 in 2022, and Agnes a half-penny. Frank received nothing. What followed next will have likely affected both boys mentally for the rest of their lives. William asked Henry and Frank to leave the van, but offered Agnes another penny to stay with him. Seeing no reason to distrust William, stranger danger wasn't a thing back in the early 1900s, the boys did as they were told and exited the vehicle. Curiosity getting the better of them, Henry and Frank peeked through the van's windows and witnessed William sexually assaulting Agnes inside. After the attack, Agnes was offered more money by William in the hope that she wouldn't tell anyone about what had happened, but thankfully she realised the severity of the situation and, backed up by Henry, told her parents. That case would end up in court with William Tompkinson being sentenced to six months hard labour. My understanding of hard labour is that those sentenced are forced to do strenuous physical work, such as powering a treadwheel, within the confines of a prison. William wasn't deterred, though. A year after the incident with Agnes Gaskin, he sexually assaulted another girl, 13 years old this time, and was sentenced to 12 months hard labour. 
Bringing our story back to Henry Jr. and his petty crimes, as I alluded to earlier, he was in trouble for several reasons. One incident saw Henry attempting to derail a train by removing the nuts and bolts from a track and dislodging it. The final straw in his series of lesser crimes was when he stole a watch from someone and gave it to someone else, perhaps hoping to incriminate him. For that offence, Henry was sent to a reform school called Saltlet Industrial, where he remained for four years. By early 1912, the then 20-year-old Henry had progressed from petty theft to mugging. On the evening of March 4th, 1912, Henry approached a woman walking on her own along Cannock's Old Hensford Road. He was wearing a dark overcoat, a cap that he'd pulled down to cover the top part of his face, and a dark cloth, possibly a handkerchief or bandana, to cover the area from his eyes down. Taking his target, Jesse Gladys Darby, by surprise, Henry withdrew a weapon from his overcoat and demanded she hand over all her money. His weapon of choice was a pistol. Jesse wasn't to know it was only a toy. Explaining to her assailant that she had no money about her person, Henry grabbed Jesse by the arm and attempted to lead her away with him. Luckily, Jesse's boyfriend appeared in the nick of time and his mere presence petrified Henry, who fled the scene. The following evening, March 5th, Henry tried his luck again. This time, his intended target was a lot younger. 16-year-old Mona Mary Bennion and her friend were walking through Chadsmore in Cannock Chase. Henry was donning the same outfit and used the same method of attack, only this time it wasn't the presence of a man that made him run away. Mona informed Henry that, like Jesse, she had no money, so off he went. Believing third time's a charm, Henry tried his hand at mugging again the following morning, March 6th. While cycling along Old Penkridge Road in Cannock, Mary Jellyman dismounted when she saw a man in the distance blocking her path with a bike of his own. Henry had acquired a bicycle from somewhere or someone, could have been his own bike for all I know, but his tactic had changed slightly for this encounter. Revealing his toy pistol, Henry demanded Mary hand over her money. Removing four shillings from her purse, the equivalent of roughly £30 in 2022, Henry opted to take one before fleeing on the bicycle. What he didn't realise was that Mary had spotted the distinctive string from Henry's scout axe poking out from his overcoat. Mary could now inform the police that her mugger was likely a scout member. Henry was likely known to police by that point as it didn't take long to bring him in for questioning. He was arrested on March 9th, 1912, three days after the third robbery attempt. Henry's punishment, handed to him in April 1912, was 12 months hard labour. He received four months for each of the muggings to be served consecutively. By the summer of 1913, Henry had been a free man for only a few months before marrying his partner Elizabeth Talbot. Elizabeth, known affectionately as Lizzie, was the third of six children to Henry Charles Talbot and Emily Ann Bailey. Henry was clearly a ridiculously common name in those days. The first of the Talbot children was Abner, born in 1889. Next came Mary in 1892. Elizabeth came on August 15, 1894. Uriah was born in 1896. Kate was born in 1899. And Fred, the couple's unexpected sixth child, came in 1909. They called number 72 Brindley Heath in Hensford their home. Each of the kids got into various mishaps throughout their respective childhoods, with Elizabeth's most serious offence occurring in March 1910 when she was 15. 
Her younger brother Uriah was party to Elizabeth stealing a pair of boots from a local bootmaker named Charles Owen, who must have caught them in the act, as the siblings were swiftly reported to the police. Elizabeth's punishment, as the elder of the two, was to be bound over and subjected to a supervision order by a juvenile court. Bound over isn't a term I've heard before, admittedly, but it seems to be the equivalent of being released on bail, as far as I can tell. As always, if I'm wrong, which I probably am, please get in touch and correct me. Every day is a school day. Henry and Elizabeth married on July 20th, 1913, but it seems like they already had a child by then. The timeline of this story is complicated at times, and it's hard to verify due to its age, but my understanding is that Arthur Henry Gaskin was born on December 10th, 1912, and will have been six months old when his parents tied the knot. In a shocking twist that would not be revealed until after both of Arthur's parents had died, Emily, Elizabeth's mum, revealed that her daughter told her that Arthur's father was not Henry. If you look at the timeline logically, it would be touch and go, because that means if the baby was born in December 1912, it would be conceived in March 1912. That's the month that he was arrested on March 9th. Born on December 10th? It's touch and go, but apparently the baby wasn't Henry's. I can't say for sure who the father was, but I'll inform you of who I think it may have been a little later in the story. Four months and a day after marrying Elizabeth, Henry was struggling financially and decided to revert to his criminal ways to earn some money. He wouldn't be mugging people this time, rather he'd be stealing items from people's houses and shops to either use himself or sell for cash. The first incident occurred in the early hours of November 21st, 1913. Isaac William Bates had finished locking up his shop on Rugley Road at 11.30pm the previous evening, then retreated upstairs to his living quarters to get ready for bed. Less than six hours later, Isaac was rudely awakened from his slumber by the sound of movement downstairs. Cautiously making his way down into his shop, Isaac noticed a broken window. The place had been ransacked. He couldn't be certain of every piece of stock taken by the robber, but they had, at the very least, stolen five shillings from the till, two jars of jam, some chocolate, and a tin of condensed milk. On top of that, a bundle of laces was also missing. For context, Henry and Elizabeth Gaskin rented a room at 80 Mount Street at that point. Their tenancy began on October 27th, 1913, just a month before Isaac Bates' shop was robbed. I mention that because on November 23rd, 1913, two days after the robbery, Mary Morris, the Gaskins' resident landlord, spotted an out-of-place item in their room. It was a tin of condensed milk. One assumes that condensed milk may have been a luxury item back then, hence why it looked like it didn't belong in the room of the financially struggling Gaskins. When confronted by Mary, Henry explained that his mum had given him the tin as a gift. The story will continue after these quick messages. And now, back to the story. Three days later, on November 26, Henry broke into another shop. This time it was that of Edward Coombs on Church Street. In an almost carbon copy of the burglary five days earlier, Henry entered the premises through a window he'd broken shortly before 5am. His bounty on this occasion was two shillings and fivepence. Sarah Coombs, Edward's daughter, was the one who was awoken after spotting a light being shone downstairs. Her bedroom door had been opened so she could hear her sick mother during the night should she need assistance. The father and daughter team later informed the police of the robbery and a thumbprint was found on a pane of the smashed glass. 
It was taken to Cannock Police Station for further analysis by an expert. More on that later. The 1913 Christmas period came and went with no further robberies, but Henry returned to his old ways in mid-January 1914. On the 14th day of that month, Henry spotted his next-door neighbour, Mary Jones, hanging out some washing on the line. Mary was another common name back then. Mary Jones would wash other people's clothes and bedding to earn a supplementary income. On the washing line, along with her own clothes, Mary had hung two blankets and a quilt cover, which newspapers at the time referred to as a counterpane. I've never heard that term before either. Between 6.30 and 7.30pm, Henry stole the two blankets and quilt cover from the washing line and returned home. Jane Ellen Jones, a resident of nearby Brindley Heath, spotted Henry with the stolen items. They belonged to Mr and Mrs Harrison and were valued at roughly 18 shillings, equating to about £120 in 2022. The next day, January 15th, Henry and Elizabeth ended their tenancy with Mary Morris and moved to a flat on Longford Lane in Bridgetown, Cannock Chase. It was there, on January 16th, that Staffordshire police visited Henry. I can't say how that visit came about, but logically, it must have something to do with what Jane Ellen Jones saw. Henry was reportedly lying on the sofa when the police were let inside by Elizabeth. He was wrapped up all warm and cosy in one of the blankets he'd stolen two days earlier. A quick search of the flat led to officers finding the other stolen blanket, the quilt cover, a burglar's mask and a scout axe. Remember how Mary Jellyman had spotted the distinctive string from a scout axe when she was robbed by a man on his bicycle? All the pieces were falling together. Henry was subsequently arrested after the brief flat search had been completed and casually told the police, I stole them because I wanted some money. I was hard up. He was referring to the two blankets and the quilt cover. Whilst on remand at HMP Stafford, Henry's fingerprints were taken. Charles Collins, Chief Inspector of the Finger Department at Scotland Yard, was the recipient of the fingerprints and was tasked with comparing them to the thumbprint found on a pane of smashed glass at Edward Coombe's shop. By January 22nd, 1914, a direct match was achieved. Henry's right thumb had left the print on the pane of glass. He was handed a three-year jail sentence on February 5th, 1914, after pleading guilty to the two shop robberies and the theft of the two blankets and quilt cover. Henry asked for the 13 other burglary offences put forward by the prosecution to be considered when handing him his sentence. His thought was that, when he was released, he could start his life fresh. Whilst her husband was incarcerated, Elizabeth fell pregnant. That was in May 1915, a year and three months after Henry had been sent down. To earn some money, Elizabeth had become a sex worker, and the father of her child was one of her clients. It's unclear whether Elizabeth took up sex work of her own accord, or was forced into it by someone else. Regardless, her baby girl was brought into the world on February 23, 1916, two years after Henry was sent to prison. She was christened Elsie May Gaskin. As Henry's second sister, Mary Louise, had back in 1901, Elsie May died in June 1916, after being alive for only four months. A month before Elsie May's death, Henry had been released from prison to join the British Army, who was slap-bang in the middle of the First World War. He had no idea that Elizabeth was pregnant, let alone had a baby. Joining the Royal Engineers at the rank of Engineer Private, or Sapper, Henry was dispatched to the Western Front after he completed his basic training. During the war, Henry spent most of his time as a tunneler on the front lines in the Belgian city of Ypres. Henry Sr. died suddenly in October 1916 when his gallstones caused biliary colic. 
he was just 53. Back in Hensford, Elizabeth initially received an army allowance due to Henry Jr. serving his country in Europe. The money she received would soon be stopped though when it came to light that she was continuing to earn an income as a sex worker. The official reports state that her army allowance was stopped due to her poor character, such was the world's view of sex work at the time. She fell pregnant again whilst Henry was away, but once again the child didn't survive for more than a few months. Henry's first official leave from the war came in September 1917, but it wasn't a happy reunion between Elizabeth and him. By that point they hadn't seen each other for over three years, and Henry had learned of her non-marital child, so he was far from pleased. They spent most of Henry's leave time arguing. A week after he arrived home, he was shipped back to Europe, this time landing in France. Two of his fellow tunnelers witnessed an incident involving a tunnel collapsing on Henry, and they noticed how his behaviour altered after that. He was only sidelined for four days before returning to the front lines, but he was a changed man. No longer seeming to care if he lived or died, Henry would wander around the trenches, unaware of the danger posed by the opposing German forces. By the time the war ended on November 11th, 1918, Elizabeth was said to be living with another soldier named Monty Harris in London, where she was pregnant again and continued to earn money as a sex worker. Monty was not only believed to have been the father of the soon-to-be-born child and the child who died during the war, but he was also believed to be the real father of Arthur Henry Gaskin. The birth of Elizabeth and Monty's third child, if we believe the rumours, came on January 16th, 1919, which just so happened to be the same day Henry Gaskin arrived back home at his mum's house after the British Army was demobilised. Talk about one hell of a coincidence. Despite her non-marital shenanigans, Elizabeth wanted to rekindle her relationship with Henry, even though he was in the process of contacting a divorce lawyer. He was having none of it, and made his feelings abundantly clear to Elizabeth. On February 19th, 1919, Henry had a few beers at the Anglesey Hotel, formerly Hensford or Hedgeford Lodge. Whilst there, he tasked a man named Tom Saunders, a neighbour of Elizabeth's family at Brindley Heath, with delivering a handwritten letter to Elizabeth. It read, Meet me by the pool at once. Important. The modern-day Hensford Park was once a large body of water covering over 27 acres of land. It was known historically as Hensford Pool, and before that Hedgeford Pool, which is what Hensford used to be called until the 18th century. Elizabeth's mum was handed the letter, but due to her illiteracy, she passed it to her daughter Mary Ann to read. Excited to rekindle with her husband, Elizabeth headed for Hensford Pool when she learned of the letter. Rekindling was not what Henry had in mind though. The pair were seen by a few witnesses heading towards Valley Colliery, and they weren't exactly enjoying each other's company. They were arguing loudly. Thomas Henry Borton was the last person to see the couple walking up a path towards one of the pits. An hour or so later, Henry emerged alone and made his way home. The following is the chain of events according to Henry, the only person whose testimony we have on record. This deserves another content warning. Feel free to skip ahead a little bit if you don't want to hear what Henry did to Elizabeth. It's pretty brutal. At first, Henry confronted Elizabeth about her relationship with Monty Harris and the non-marital children. Not liking what he heard, Henry struck Elizabeth several times in the face, dislodging some of her teeth in the process and knocking her to the ice-cold snowy ground. This next part is particularly disturbing. 
Henry allegedly attempted to remove Elizabeth's womb with his bare hands, but after failing, he made up four snowballs and inserted each of them inside Elizabeth's vagina. After that, he grabbed a stick and forced it down Elizabeth's throat before removing all her clothes with his army knife. With the same knife, Henry cut Elizabeth from her vagina to her belly button before standing on her neck until she could no longer breathe. The last words Elizabeth heard were, I'm going to kill you and cut you into pieces. Once Elizabeth was dead, Henry extended the pre-existing cut up to her neck and began removing her innards. I'm not sure I believe it, but some sources indicate that Elizabeth was still alive when Henry covered her body with her clothes and left her in the woods. If that's true, she will no doubt have succumbed to her injuries a short while later. Arriving home at 5.30pm, Henry went about his business and had his tea. Later that night, he returned to where he had left Elizabeth's body and removed her head, probably thinking it would be harder to identify her if found. He also attempted to cut one of her legs off, but abandoned the idea when it became too difficult. Elizabeth's body was dragged to a nearby culvert, but her head and clothes were taken to an abandoned gasworks where they were dumped in a gas holder or gasometer. Elizabeth's parents were the ones that reported her missing after confronting Henry as to her whereabouts. He informed them that she didn't show up at the pool, which they didn't believe for a second. In the early hours of the next morning, Henry retrieved Elizabeth's body, took it to the gasworks and dumped it where her head and clothes were. Searches by the police led to no traces of Elizabeth being found, however they still arrested Henry on suspicion of her murder on February 21st 1919. In the cells, Gaskin confessed to the murder and provided officers with a written confession. He even offered to show them where he had hidden Elizabeth's body, which he did on February 23rd 1919. In his confession, Henry said, She is in the fields. I cut her head off and tried to cut her leg off, but the sinews held it together. Once at Gaskin's wood, Henry picked up a stick and told the officers, This is what I stuck down her throat. I dragged her body to a culvert close to the wood and carried her head and clothes and dropped them in the gas holder. The following night, after being seen by the police, I fetched the body from the culvert and carried it to the gasworks and dropped that also in the gas holder. Henry had omitted a few disturbing details though. He failed to mention to the police that he'd slashed at Elizabeth's breasts and bum with the army knife and removed her entire vagina, which by the way was never found. A funeral was held for Elizabeth on March 2nd 1919 at St Peter's Church with hundreds of people attending the ceremony. Henry's trial occurred in the summer of 1919 and despite his best efforts he was not found to have committed the murder whilst temporarily insane. The medical evidence did not back that claim up. On July 4th, 1919, Henry Gaskin was sentenced to death by hanging at Staffordshire Assizes after the jury returned with a guilty verdict after only retiring for 24 minutes. On hearing his death sentence, Harry said, I did not intend to kill her. The execution of Henry Gaskin occurred on August 8th, 1919 at Winson Green Prison. He was given a drop of 6 feet 3 inches and plunged to his death in the view of around 200 spectators. And that was a story of British murderer Henry Gaskin. Thanks again Charlotte Cowley for suggesting that case. Thank you also to Charlotte's former history teacher Paul Bedford who wrote a book on the case titled Gaskin. It assisted my research massively and I've referenced it on BritishMurders.com if you'd like to check it out. I've got nine new reviews to read this week so please bear with me. 
The Dogs 55555 left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts in Thailand. This show is The Dogs. Brilliant. Lid3001 left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Love listening to this podcast just before bed or in the car. Great voice and subtle sense of humour that lifts an otherwise dark topic. Have introduced my sister and a few friends to this podcast and they all enjoy it too. My only bug is that the episodes are too short. Keep up the great work. Shrewsbury Christie left the following five-star review on Apple Podcasts in the USA. I'm a US person who has spent the greater part of the last eight years going back and forth to the UK. Stuart has a great voice, great accent and sense of humour. Finding this podcast during the pandemic was great when I couldn't travel across the pond. Stuart discusses darker content but delivers it in an interesting way by looking at the psychology of it and also presents interesting facts about the legal system in the UK. Charlotte Arocchi left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. So glad I found it. Surely the home of Agatha Christie and Arthur Conan Doyle does it better and Stuart Blues is a talented storyteller and conducts fascinating interviews. Listen every day. Don't know if I've misread that or just don't understand it, but you have given a haiku. Soon the night will come. So many pretties walking. Which one is for me? Rebecca left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Love it. I've binged up to season four in the last week. Easy to follow and the lightheartedness is a great way to tackle such a morbid subject. Sarah Jeunou left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. I'm very new to podcasts and this is one of the first I've listened to. I'm absolutely hooked. I suffer with insomnia and spend my nights now catching up on the episodes. I've also joined Patreon so I can now access other exclusive content. Thank you to the host Stuart for keeping me company on the nights of no sleep. And one last thing to say, cheerio. Keely left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. I absolutely love this podcast. It has very interesting cases and is delivered in a brilliant British way. The horror movie glimpses are a nice touch on how to break up episodes and I love the variety of guests. Stuart has an amazing voice and fantastic style in presenting his podcasts. One of your biggest fans. Debbie KB123 left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. I'm really enjoying this podcast. It's easy to listen to, really interesting, fab host, and a lot of the cases I'd not heard of. Thank you. And finally, Ange Dorothy left the following five-star review on BritishMurders.com. Love this series, was playing catch-up for a while, but now kept eagerly waiting every Thursday. Ironically, the length is perfect, but I always want more. An interesting case to cover would be that of Carol and Peter Tilbrook of Mitcham, with whom I had a connection via my father as a child. Ange, South East London. I'll make sure to add that to my spreadsheet, Ange, thanks for that. Thank you, the dogs, 55555, Lid3001, Shrewsbury Christie, Charlotte, Rebecca, Sarah, Keeley, Debbie and Ange for leaving the show such lovely reviews. Suppose you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode. You can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each of those on the website. Thank you Zevan Odelberg, Sarah Jernu and Anna McKell for supporting the show by becoming Patreon members. By joining the show's Patreon, they will now gain early access to ad-free episodes as well as fortnightly bonus episodes. Thank you Mary Fish for buying me three beers at buymeacoffee.com slash britishmurders. Mary said, Listening from Grand Haven, Michigan in the US. Finding a type of killer you find interesting is a disturbing thing to admit to, but I find the psychology of family annihilators to be interesting. Do you know of any stories of British men who killed their whole family? Sadly, yes, I do. I've covered two family annihilator cases so far on British murders. 
Episode 3 of Season 3 saw me cover the case of Philip Austin in Northampton, and Episode 9 of Season 5 saw me cover the case of Lee Ford in Cornwall. Please continue emailing case suggestions to britishmurderspodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll also get a cheeky shout out. That's it for this episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio. Cheerio.